I'd like you to turn to Leviticus 16, and this is uh, this is a P.S. on last week. Uh, for those of us, for those who will be listening online, uh, we are uh, still in God's wrath in the Bible. We have finished another document uh, entitled "Wrath as a Divine Characteristic," and. I want to add a PS to last week. Last week we concluded that in light of the canonical usage of divine anger, that where divine, God is not angry once in Genesis, that the character of God does not have anger as one of his attributes. Anger really is it's more of something that he does or does not do, maybe is a, a way of putting it. Uh, where he re- he stops protecting people who go beyond his protection, who resist him, he will not force himself on them, and so they they suffer the consequences of their choice. And we suggested that the concept of divine anger as an attribute originated in Babylonia uh, with angry kings, and gods came to be seen as like angry kings. So. There's a lot more that we said, but uh, that would mean need to uh, be listened to on the recording. What I'd like to do is add a P.S. There is an angry God in the Old Testament who has anger as his attribute, as his chief attribute. And it's in a very surprising place. <laughs> so Leviticus 16. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I want to get into the New Testament as quickly as possible. But... Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't share this with you. Uh, this is the, Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement, you have the sin offering. Or actually, um, a purification offering is uh, you have a purification offering with the bull, and then you have these two goats. And the Day of Atonement is kind of the the day of full cleansing of Israel from the sin. It's, it's the one day of the year where everything gets cleansed. The sanctuary gets cleansed. The people get cleansed. And they participate in the cleansing of the sanctuary. So they, Aaron first in verse 6 offers a bull as a purification offering for reconciliation for himself and his home, his, his household. That word there is, is really expiation or cleansing. And it really has to do with cleansing from sin, not a propitiation as in appeasement. My translation doesn't seem to see the difference, but there is one. Then he takes, he takes the two male goats and places them before Yahweh in the meeting of entrance and they cast lots over the goat. One is labeled Yahweh's goat or the Lord's goat and the other is labeled Azazel's goat. Who's Azazel? It's like a demon goat. <laughs> okay, that's that's what most scholars uh, believe. It, it, we Adventists believe that it represents um, the angry god or Satan. Satan, yeah. Adventists believe it represents Satan. M- most evangelical Christians and maybe even mainstream uh, liberal Christians believe that Azazel is another representation of of Jesus, that these two goats both represent Jesus. 
And because Jesus was crucified outside the camp, they see a parallel. And so they see that both goats as representing Jesus. But I would, I would have to ask the question, why do you have two goats for Jesus instead of just one? You know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, is that because there's two parts to Jesus' death? And, and where is Jesus let go into the wilderness after he dies? It doesn't make sense. The, the belief that it's a demonic, a demon goat, comes from two things. The ancient Near East uh, goats kind of did have the aura of being demonic to the minds of the people. If you've ever had a pet goat, <laughs> you kind of know why. <laughs> goats are obstreperous. <laughs> they are can be mean-spirited and, and really cantankerous, um, especially male goats. But there's there's another reason... There's another reason why scholars accept the Azazel goat as a demonic figure, and that is that it's rooted in Jewish tradition. The Jewish rabbis were pretty uniform that this goat represented a, ne- a demon. And I came across, uh, well, for years, I wrestled with what Azazel means. There are several roots to it. There's there's O's or Azaz in Hebrew that can mean to be strong, it'd be vigorous, uh, but it doesn't really work linguistically to say that this means the strength of God or the strong God or or whatever. And the more I looked at this, the more I was convinced, having studied Akkadian, that this is built on a Akkadian word that you should be familiar with by now because we've talked about it here, Azazu. If you look at um, God's Wrath in the Bible document and look at the last page, uh, yeah, the very last page, page 12, at the top of the page, in Akkadian two major verbs for wrath exist, Agagu and Azazu. Does Azazu remind you of anything? Azazel, doesn't it? Auditorily, it's the same with the L ending. Though often used synonymously, the former is used of a passing emotion. So agagu is a passing emotion. Uh, you get hot, angry, and, and you do something, and then it's over. While the latter refers to an inherent quality, a characteristic. So this is part of your character, Azazu. Both are extensively used with gods as their subject. This is in Akkadian literature. By contrast, Yahweh's character does not include wrath or terms for power. And I refer you to Exodus 34 where God reveals his character to Moses. Now, that being the case, Azazel, if Azazel has Azazu in it, then this is truly El. What does El represent in Hebrew? Does anybody know? God. So you have anger of God or more likely angry God. And uh, for for a number of years, I taught this in Books of Moses class. <laughs> uh, and I pointed this out to my students. And then uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, I started rethinking this. I thought, you know, I don't know of a scholar in the land that would support me on this. And I'm not a linguist, so I have no business trying to be one. Uh, and I, I just laid it aside and I stopped teaching it. And then last year, I came across an article by uh, 
Tal Will. I forget his first name, unfortunately. Uh, he's a Jewish scholar in Israel. And so he's Israeli Jew. And um, he did a study of this goat. He did a, a rather major paper that I got a hold of in which he contends that Azazel means angry God. So if if we believe that if we want to believe in an angry God, the angry God that exists, <laughs> little G, in the Old Testament is Satan, from an Adventist perspective. This has enormous implications because one of the backgrounds to, well, the background to Leviticus 16 is the story of Nadab and Abihu who dropped dead in the on the temple, consumed the fire coming out from God and consuming them, and yet their their bodies are still in their garments, and they get toted out with their garments. Apparently, their garments aren't burned up, and and so that that requires all kinds of explanations. And we've suggested that that story is best interpreted by understanding that that God's glory, which is His love, uh, when it, when we are out of harmony with it, and we are we come into that presence out of harmony with it, it is a consuming fire. It doesn't isn't a fire like an ordinary fire where you light a match and you burn something up. It's it's a different kind of fire, but it does consume a person. So that's that's how we can explain that. What is interesting is the story doesn't mention that God is angry at all. It doesn't mention his wrath. But it does raise the question, of course, in the Israelite mind, how can you get into the most holy place? Because apparently Nadab and Abihu went into the most holy place. How can you get into the most holy place without being consumed? How how is God angry? Because to the people, even though the text doesn't say he's angry, they're going to think he is. I mean, how, how dreadful a thing to happen. And and why else could it be that but that God is angry? So I see the Day of Atonement as an explanation, an acted out explanation for how sin and its consequences work. And that God, at the end of the day, when he cleanses his sanctuary, he takes the angry God and he lets him go. Just as in his wrath, he lets people go, as we've noted in numerous places in the Old Testament. So So I think the Day of Atonement teaches us that the angry God is not Yahweh. But it's Hasatan. It's the devil. It's the demonic figures. Uh, so I, I wanted to, to say that because I love to end on this note. <laughs> uh, that, that we don't have to see Yahweh as characteristically an angry God. This is not his character. And, and the reason why he's portrayed as angry has to do with meeting the people where they are and speaking their language. Uh, because if kings are angry, gods are angry, and most of the portrayals of God as an angry God are in the prophets, which prophesied during the monarchical period when kings were angry. Uh, so there's there's a definite correlation there. All right, we are now ready to go to the New Testament. That was our PS on last week. And I don't know how fast we'll get going on this. There's a lot of text here, and there's there's more than it looks like. I mean, it just looks like oh, two pages compared to pages and pages. But 
I didn't double space these. <laughs> so there's more here. There's more like four pages of text or at least three. So why don't we just jump in? Actually, it begins on page nine, I believe. And, uh, we'll begin with Matthew 5.22. We're just going to go through these in order, I think, as they appear in the canon. That's, that's not because that's particularly meaningful, but it's just easier to keep track. So, who shall we start with? Uh, Jonathan, one, Jonathan Guevara. Other Jonathan. <laughs> Call you one and two here. <laughs> Jonathan G. No, they're both Jonathan. Jonathan G. That doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Why don't you read? Okay. But I say to you, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Okay. Uh, if you look at verse 21, the context of this is, uh, you have heard it said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. Jesus suggests here that anger is what makes you in danger of judgment. What does that mean? What does that suggest about Jesus' understanding of anger? Yeah. Is it equivalent to murder? If murder is making you liable to judgment, then angry, being angry with your brother or sister is murder if it makes you liable to judgment. Uh, what does that suggest? That's an interesting place to begin in the New Testament canon. Well, definitely that in, if we, we understand Jesus to be God, then anger would not be a characteristic of God. So God can't be angry, but we shouldn't. Or, or how shall I put this? Uh, some people think that God can be angry, but we can't. How would you answer that argument? I'm gonna uh, yeah, go ahead, Jonathan. I know the the whole set of a few or one verse. Um, isn't all about actions, but at least two out of the three examples he gives are when you act out your anger. The first mm-hmm. one just says being angry with your brother and sister, you're subject mm-hmm. to judgment. But the other two are when you curse at them or mm-hmm. call or them something. fool. Yeah. Um. So I don't know, maybe because everybody gets angry, right? And it it's motivating to do something. So I don't know, maybe it's a good motivator to do improve your situation but if you use it wrongly but Jesus says he was angry and if you if you include that in the list then it's not good to be angry is it I, I know we and sometimes we I have heard the argument that uh, because we get angry and we're created in the image of God therefore God gets angry I'm sure Adam and Eve wouldn't have a reason to be angry before sin. Uh, probably the fall of man brought on the characteristic of anger in humans. Okay, so if we go back to the beginning, and that's that's where Jesus often goes, isn't it? 
Um, he goes, to, in the beginning it was not so, when he talks about divorce. So if we go back to the beginning, there's nothing about anger in Genesis 1 and 2, is there? And we can say, well, there's no need for anger, so of course we're not going to have anger. I'm, I'm pressing this because I want us to really carefully think about this. I would like to approach this from the Old Testament. Numerous places in, in Torah, God says, be holy because I am holy, which is a way of saying, be like me. If that is the case, and we're to be holy as God is holy, God, there can't be two standards, one for God and one for us. Okay? So, so if Jesus is saying he who is angry with a brother or a sister is liable to judgment, and that's in the context of murder making you liable to judgment, Jesus is equating anger with, with murder. And that's very insignificant because in Matthew 5 as a whole, what Jesus really does a lot of consistently, and maybe what we should do is look at the law of adultery right below this. Why don't you read verses 27 and 28, Adam? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So where does Jesus go? The action or the heart? And uh, let's see... Then and then, it, what is interesting is when Jesus talks about the law, and this whole section is framed, you know, by Jesus' statement: "I don't even begin to think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. I've not come to do away with them, but to fulfill them." That word "fulfill" can mean to explain. And so then he starts with the law of murder and says, "Anger is murder," and then he goes to adultery, divorce, pledges, pledges, and then he goes to the law of retaliation. And then he goes to loving your enemies. Now, if there's anybody we're likely to get angry with, it's not our friends, is it? <laughs> it's our enemies. So it, Jesus frames this whole law by the internal thing of love that is supposed to captivate our hearts. And true love, and, and what is interesting is, is let's read a 43 248. Uh, Jonathan, why don't you read that? Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's I be holy as I am holy. Again. So what Jesus suggests is that the test of whether we love, whether we really keep the commandments, is whether we love our enemies. Because if we only love those who love us, that's self-serving. Because we're going to get back something out of this relationship. But if all I'm going to get out of the relationship is abuse, and I still love them, then I'm really keeping the law. 
It's a powerful statement, and I don't think we've ever plumbed its depths. So if that's the case, who loved his enemies as a model for us? Jesus. And Jesus is God. God did not withhold his son, but he sent him uh, into the world. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, while we still hated him, while we still abused him, while we still uh, did all these things. You remember Jesus says to Saul on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you? <laughs> and Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you persecute. He wasn't persecuting Jesus directly, but he was persecuting his people. And by persecuting his people, he was persecuting Jesus. So, so you can, we can say that Satan has been hostile over and over again to God, has persecuted God. He's been his chief enemy and he's led us to do the same. And yet while we were still hostile, while we were still enmity with God, Christ died for us. So God has exemplified this. And just as God exemplifies this by sending rain and sunshine on the just and on the unjust alike, Jesus says, love your enemies. So you may be children of your father and you may be perfect as he is perfect. If, if we start with this and say this has to be, this, everything has to reconcile with this verse. Then the way we re- we understand God and His wrath has to has to correspond to what we've just read. Okay, let's move on to Matthew eight. And uh, I threw this in here not because not because it really directly has to do with wrath, but because it it does have to do with hell. Uh, Matthew eight ten to twelve. Bianca, you want to read that, please? When Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, "Truly, I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth." That's hell for Jesus. Outer darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Is that something God does to them? Or is this simply the result of rejecting uh, love? Let's look at Matthew 10, 28. We'll just do work through some of these quickly because uh, they're all about the same. Uh, Tara, you want to read that? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And is your one capitalized in your version? Uh, yes. Uh, which which version are you using? NIV. NIV. Anybody have it differently? I have um, just him in lowercase. Uh, him in lowercase. And that's what you have too, Bianca? Oh. Okay. Uppercase. In the Greek... It is simply the one who. And we automatically assume it's God. Right? He has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. So we're not to fear those who who try to do that to us physically, outwardly, but we're to fear God. If we fear God, then what they do to us outwardly, how do we not fear that? It seems like I'm now afraid of two two different people now instead of... Uh, 
Ellen White suggests and, and Desire of Ages that uh, the one we need to fear is ourselves. We're the only ones who have the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. That is, we, we are the ones who choose our destiny, not God. So once I know I have to be afraid of myself, uh, that quells my fears because it's hard to be afraid of yourself. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to really believe that. Uh, I think for a lot of people. Uh, so, but but the idea is we're not to be afraid of Satan. We're not to be afraid of those who who might torture us for our faith. This is what Jesus was faced with and his followers in the first century. And we don't need to be afraid of God. Uh, let's let's not read the next one. I'll just refer to it. Uh, once again, the furnace of fire is the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew eighteen twenty three to thirty five is a parable in which the person who uh, is the antagonist in the parable uh, is handed over to be tortured and until he pays his debt. This is simply giving up. And who are the torturers? See, that's the question. Are they God? Are they demons? You know, standard Christian belief has long been that Satan is God's agent of punishment and that he oversees hell where he tortures the wicked unendingly with pitchfork. Uh, that has been standard fare uh, for Christians for many, many centuries. I don't see that in the Bible as a teaching. I don't see that Satan is really God's agent, but rather as he is the antagonist of God, the enemy of God. And so who are the torturers here? I think it's, I think that when God hands the wicked over at the end of the millennium, they turn on one another and there's a scene of universal strife. And I'm quoting here. That basically the torturers are everybody like them. If if let's let's go back to Matthew five for a moment. You don't have to turn to it, but remember Jesus saying, "If you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not the Gentiles do the same? If you love your enemies, the only way to not be like your enemies is to love them." Because if you love them, you will never be like them. So the torturers are the people who don't love one another and don't love their enemies. And they, they, it, if everybody retaliates against other people who hurt them with hurting them, the whole world becomes a place of hurting other people. We just end up hurting one another endlessly. And I think that's what Jesus means. The torturers will torture them. Um, and, and so all these verses are pretty much the same. Let's look at Mark 3, 5. This is now the first canonical instance where Jesus is said to get angry. And Glow, you want to read that? You need to take the microphone. Matthew, Mark, um, yeah, Mark 3, 5. Why don't you read verses 1 to 5? So we get the context. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man which there had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, and they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, 
stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Okay, notice that it says, He looked around them in anger, comma, grieved at their hardness of heart. What does that say to us about Jesus' anger? Sadness, grief. Does that remind you of anything in the Old Testament? At the flood. It doesn't say he was angry. It says he was grieved. So uh, these these are two very important canonical bookends, you might say, uh, where God's anger is his grief. A lot of these have to do with uh, the final death of the wicked. Uh, so I'm I'm going to just simply note them. Mark four twenty four. I'm having trouble getting my Bible to work properly. Mike 4, uh, 24 and 25. We're not going to read this. Uh, I just want you to note the passive tense of the verbs. Uh, God will judge us according to the same standard we use to judge other people. Uh, those who have re- will receive more, but those who don't have even what they have will be taken away from them. It will be taken away from them. It isn't something God does. It just simply is the result of, of sin. And uh, Mark 9:42 to 48, the worm that never dies and the fire that is never quenched. This is not an ever-burning fire. This is simply a fire that is unquenchable except by death. And that fire, I believe, having studied fire in the Bible, is emotional agony. The wicked, the the, the fire that is unquenchable is the wicked's emotional agony, uh, when, as they, as they realize fully, uh, their condition. And, and Luke 12, 46 to 48, I would put him, put it with, uh, Matthew 18, 23 to 35. This, who are the torturers? Who are the ones that do the beating? Uh, who will cut in pieces or cut off? I believe the wicked cut themselves off. It's not something that God arbitrarily does. Look at, um, oh, I'm, I kind of went all over the place on this. Um, I want to stick to wrath, basically. Because I think we could go in too many different directions. But if, if you look at John 3.16, for example, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, will not perish. Not, will not be destroyed by God, but simply will not perish. And, and the Greek there is middle voice, which is reflexive. It's something you do to yourself. The wicked will, so that they, whoever believes in him will not destroy themselves, but may have eternal life. Look at Acts 2, 27 to 31. And somebody read, okay, Jonathan, I guess it's your turn. Why don't you read verses, verses 23 to 28. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, 
crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is an appropriate text on Sabbath of Easter weekend, isn't it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Notice, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. There's a there's a popular Christian belief that Jesus went to hell on Sabbath uh, to pay the, pay the full penalty for our sins and that he suffered torture and flames uh, like any sinner in order to pay that price. Uh, but this clearly says you will not abandon him to Hades. He won't go there. He doesn't even decay in death. So when Jesus dies... again the question is did Jesus suffer God's wrath Uh, the Bible doesn't explicitly say so but we we tend to gather that from putting the puzzle pieces together that that Jesus suffered from God's wrath and who killed Jesus or what killed Jesus this this text uh, suggests uh, you with the help of people outside the law, that is, their law, their, they are, in a sense, the law, the law of the Romans. You, with the help of these people, had Jesus killed by nailing him to a cross. So they tried to put him to death, but is that what killed him? If we believe he's a sin bearer, and, and Paul says he was made to be sin who knew, knew no sin, then it's sin that killed Jesus, not God. So, um, uh, just note five, Acts 5, 1 to 11 here in the list. I'm still on page 10 in case. Adam, would you like to have this temporarily since you're without <laughs> page 10? Sorry, I took so long to figure that out. So, uh, Acts 5 is, is after the cross. Ananias and Sapphira drop dead on the church floor because they cheated and lied about it to the Holy Spirit and to Peter. It says nothing about God killing them. They just simply die. So we could see this as simply God no longer protecting them and the shock of of uh, being found out is takes its toll on the body. And And so I note these different places Let's now look at a key passage in in Romans. Romans 1. This is the most important place. And this is probably where we should, well, we'll see how long it takes us. Church begins at 11.15, and I want to give you plenty of time to get there. So this may be our last place. Adam, would you please read verses 18 through 32. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, uh, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men who also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Therefore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that what they do, what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, murder strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous um, decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of them who practice them. It's quite a list. Anybody escape that? <laughs> That's Paul's point, by the way, is that everybody is in this list. Um, but notice that three times. Well, first of all, let's go back to verse 18. It says, God's wrath is revealed. This word is apocalypto, uh, which is the basis of the apocalypse of Revelation. Uh, it means to disclose, to uncover, to unveil, to to reveal, to expose. That means... It's a very definitive word. That is what, what God, when God's wrath is revealed, now we see what it really is. That's, that's the core meaning of this verb. And notice that in verse 24, 26, and 28, it says three times, God gave them up. That's God's wrath. Most clearly defined in scripture, God gave them up. So all those places in the Old Testament that we saw where, where God's wrath is giving people up or handing them over are simply foreshadowings of this very stark and clear definition of God's wrath. And, and I want to, I want to post this as, as the pillar, as the pillar verse or verses that depict this because I believe we can take this as a hermeneutic, as a, as a canopy of which to explain and understand the entire Old Testament and New Testament. Quick peek. We'll review this again next week. But, um, uh, Jonathan, would you read verses, chapter two of Romans, verses one to nine? I'm sorry, one to ten. 
That's a long chapter passage too. Maybe, maybe we should wait till next week. Do you suppose? Yeah. Why don't we wait till next week on that? Um, but this this is the key text. We'll review it next week and then move on to the next place because I think Paul is very clear about what God's wrath is. And once we kind of log that into our heads, we can then read that into other places where it isn't so clear. Okay. Any comments or, or questions before we close? This might be completely unrelated, but... How is his eternal power and divine nature clearly seen and understood from what's been made? Because I feel like nature is this cruel and heartless thing that I, I think that you can go either way with that. You can paint God as this total monster if, if you wanted to through nature. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's talking about his character there. He's talking about his existence, his power, uh, his eternal power, his deity, his divinity is clearly revealed. Paul talks about his character revealed in Jesus. <laughs> yeah, you can take it either way, and we have to. And I think everything in the Bible and everything in nature has to be read in the light that we get from Calvary. Yeah, you know, it, it's all. You know, we have to take that, and otherwise, our vision is very clouded because we live in this sinful environment and. And honestly, after watching my cats this week deal with spring, <laughs> I, I don't think much of their integrity and unselfishness <laughs> and other qualities. They're pretty, they're pretty sinful <laughs> animals. <laughs> All right, uh, that was a bad note to end on. <laughs> Uh, well, have a, have a good Easter Sabbath and Sunday, uh, remembering Jesus' death and, and what it means, how it hit, um, the split heart of God. I, I was thinking about this metaphor last night with the rock that split water out for the Israelites and that became a symbol in Paul of the rock Jesus who, because he was split in a sense, that broken heart let loose water for salvation. And that's all symbolic of when God's heart is broken because of sin and when it's, when it, when we do our worst to Him, He simply splits open His love and pours it out. And while we were, so while we were His enemies, He died for us. Uh, and that's why we should love our enemies. So why don't we end on that note and let's have prayer. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word and that when we stand at the foot of the cross, we can see your wrath poured out on your son and know that it isn't something you did to him, but something that sin has done to him and that you simply handed him over to the consequences of sin. We ask that uh, we may not fear you, but we may fear the sin that destroys. May we have every motivation from you and your love to live in harmony with that love and to love our enemies as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.